Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. My name is Katie Eller. I'm a member of the Cotswold Women's Shepherding Team. And I'm going to read our passage this morning, which comes from Mark 4, verses 1 through 20. You can follow along in your bulletin. Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down, while the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore. He taught them many things and parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly, since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit that increased thirty, sixty, and a hundred times. Then he said, Let anyone who has ears hear to listen. To hear, listen, sorry. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. He answered them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside everything comes in parables, so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise they may turn back and be forgiven. Then he said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. And others are like seed sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root, and they are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seed sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word. But the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seed sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. All right, so again, my name is Tripp. Pastor Mark uh, was supposed uh, to preach this morning, and he got just a little uh, COVID earlier this week. Uh, So I think it kind of messed up his Thanksgiving uh, and so it says his name in the bulletin. Um, he sent me his notes just to kind of give me a head start when he, when he let me know that, that I'd be filling in for him. And guys, it was going to be a really, really good sermon. Like it was going to be a really good one. Uh, but my uh, sermon, I'm, you know, um, sorry, I'm going to keep it sim- I'm going to try to keep it simple. I'm not going to quote Aldous Huxley on, on the front. So it's a good quote. I, d- I don't know how it was going to connect to the sermon, but it is an interesting quote uh, that Aldous said. This morning, we're, we're looking at what is for, for many of us, a familiar uh, passage, a familiar parable. Uh, and so my desire is to try to keep it very, very simple and really uh, just focus on uh, one thing as we look through this passage. And so just remember where we are in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is, uh, he's traveling around and he is proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom of God, mostly in the region of Galilee, Okay, so later on in his ministry, he starts to focus on Judea and move toward Jerusalem. Right now, he's still in Galilee, beside the Sea of Galilee, and he's traveling around, he's teaching, he's healing people, he's casting out 
demons, and he's drawing a large crowd, an ever-increasing crowd. And the first thing, I think, just to remember, just to call to mind, remember that Jesus is a real historical figure, and these are real historical events. This really happened. As we become more familiar with Jesus and kind of this whole church thing, I think that sometimes, subconsciously, we start to mythologize some of this stuff. Um, we start to think of the Gospels more like kind of folk tales or, or fables. Okay, and so these parables slot right into that, right? Because they're a little fable with a little moral at the end of the lesson. Okay, but remember, Jesus is a real person. The Bible purports to tell us things about real people and events that really happened. The central person being Jesus and the central event being his death and his resurrection. And so if you need to this morning, remind yourself of the historicity of this passage these people, this place. And it might even be helpful to imagine yourself there among the crowd to see Jesus teaching beside the Sea of Galilee. Back in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, a team of Israeli scientists located and studied in, in Israel what they called natural amphitheaters. And these were sort of uh, geological formations uh, where they sort of they amplify the voice of the speaker because of the natural formation of the land around them. And one such amphitheater was this small secluded bay just south of Capernaum, which was Jesus' kind of headquarters for his ministry in Galilee, near a little village called Tabga. And it's this little bay on the Sea of Galilee. And if the speaker stood down by the water, or in this case, got into a boat and went just out into the shallows, it would amplify his voice. And the people who were sitting on the slope along the side of the sea could hear him, even if there was a large crowd there. Uh, and that little bay today is actually called the Bay of Parables. And you can look it up on Google Maps. It's still there near this, this little town called Tabga. And it, we don't know that that's where Jesus was doing it. But it was probably in a place like that along the sea. He climbs into a boat. There's a large crowd trying to get close to him. And so he sets out into the shallows a little bit. And he begins to teach. Okay, but he's teaching in parables. Okay? And that's the second thing to note about our passage this morning is that Jesus' preferred method of teaching in public, teaching to the crowds, was with parables. And Mark actually, in the Gospel of Mark, he includes fewer of these than Matthew and Luke do. But between the four Gospels, there are something like 60 different parables that Jesus uses to teach people. And Jesus didn't necessarily come up with this form of teaching, but he is the all-time master of it. He is the parabolist par excellence. And he, he told dozens and dozens of parables, and a few of them are some of the most memorable and sort of shaping stories that have ever been told in the history of the world. And so you've heard some of these parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? the parable of the prodigal son, and this morning, the parable of the sower. That word parable, it just comes from the Greek word parabole. It just means to set two things side by side, to make a comparison or a connection. And so Jesus is always coming along and he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like a seed, right? Or it's like a lamb. It's like a small child. It's like a lost coin. And he tells these parables. Before we jump into the parable itself, I think the question that naturally arises is, why did Jesus do that? Why does he like to teach in parables so much? Why, did, why is this his preferred method of teaching people about the kingdom? 
And it's a good question, and in fact, it's the exact question that Jesus' disciples ask in this passage when they're alone with him later on. They say, why, why are you teaching in parables? What's the deal with the parables, Jesus? And I, and I think that there are two related answers to that question, and Jesus tells us the first one outright there in verses 11 and 12. Jesus says to the disciples, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables, so that, and then he quotes something, he says, so that they may indeed look yet not perceive and they may indeed listen and yet not understand, otherwise they might turn back and be forgiven. Now, that is an odd, and can we say it, kind of an uncomfortable thing for Jesus to say there, right? It, it, it seems inconsiderate of him. He seems to be saying that he doesn't want people to understand, right? He speaks in parables because he doesn't want them to be clear. He doesn't want it to be clear to them. Does that make us a little uncomfortable? That's a little inconvenient, a little inconsiderate of Jesus. Why doesn't Jesus want to make his message as clear as possible to as many people as possible? And it's actually related to another question that you might have had if you've been paying attention so far through this series on the Gospel of Mark. Because every time that Jesus confronts a demon in the Gospel of Mark. Every time he casts out a demon, do you remember what happens? He he starts to approach this demon-possessed person, and almost without exception, these demons start to say, oh, we know who you are. You're the Son of God. What do you have to do with us? And they basically say, we'll do whatever you tell us to do as long as you don't crush us yet, Jesus. And And again, without exception, Jesus says to them, shut your mouth. Be quiet right? Don't tell people who I am yet. Commentators on the book of Mark call this the secrecy motif, the secrecy theme of the gospel of Mark. When people start to get an idea that Jesus might be the Messiah, the hero that they've been waiting for, the king, they almost always want to do one of two things with him. They either want to employ him or they want to destroy him. Every person who starts to get an idea of who Jesus really is and the immense power that he possesses, the authority, they want to do one of those two things. And so some people will say, let's take you to Jerusalem right now, Jesus. Let's put you on the throne. Let's use you to cast off the oppressors. Let's defeat the bad guys and restore us, the good guys, to comfort and convenience and fame and flourishing in the world, right? Or... Other people say, we got to figure out how to kill this guy because he is upending the structures of control and religious self-righteousness that we have put in place. We've got to destroy him. And maybe you see the irony there. When people find out who Jesus really is, they either want to make him king or they want to make him dead. And both of those things will eventually happen in the story. But not in the way that we would expect and not according to anyone's timing except Jesus himself. Jesus will be executed and he will be enthroned as king, but not in the way that we would expect. And so by preaching in parables and maintaining this mystery, this secrecy about his identity, Jesus is progressing his ministry according to his own timeline. He is saying, we'll get there, but not expediently. 
right? Not in the way that you would expect. I am in control and I know what's best. And by the way, that's why we'll see this in a few weeks, okay? But when we get to Mark chapter 8, there's this turning point in the whole story that Mark is telling because Jesus says to the disciples, who are people saying that I am? And then the disciples say, here are a bunch of different theories about who you are, Jesus. And then he looks at his, his followers, his closest followers, and he says, who do you say that I am? Right. And Peter says, one of, one of Peter's great moments, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the hero of the story that we've been waiting for. Right. And Jesus says, man didn't reveal this to you. The Holy Spirit re revealed this to you. And then the very next thing that Jesus says is, I am going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And the same Peter says, no, 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 that, that's a bad idea. That's not how we're going to do this, Jesus. Right? Goes from one of his best moments, literally like two sentences later, to one of his worst moments. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about the things of God, but the things of man. Right? You see what's going on there. Jesus is controlling his story, controlling his timeline. He is progressing toward the cross because he understands what he is doing in a way that even his closest followers don't yet understand. And that's the same reason that he uses parables. Notably, the parables pretty much disappear after Mark chapter 8 because Jesus says, now the cat's out of the bag. Right? So Jesus teaches in parables to keep people from understanding him, but in so doing, he is actually trying to prevent people from misunderstanding him and misusing him. He's basically saying, I would rather you not understand me yet than think that you have understood me, but really misunderstand and try to control me and change the story, right? That is, to come to Jesus with honest questions and confusion is better than coming with assumptions and presumptuousness and some pretense of control over him, okay? And that points to the second reason, and I think it's the deeper reason why Jesus uses parables. Look again at what Jesus says to his closest followers, his disciples, in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. He says, you have something that other people don't have, the secret of the kingdom. And that allows you to begin to rightly understand these parables. And I imagine when Jesus said that, the disciples were like, we do? <laughs> right? Okay, what is the secret? I was talking to my wife about this passage when I found out six hours ago that I was going to be preaching. No, I'm just kidding. It was longer ago than that. But I was saying, hey, Brentley, what do you think the secret of the kingdom is? Right? And she gave the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Right? And that's right. The secret of the kingdom is the identity of the true king. And that unlocks the meaning of this parable and every parable. So Jesus says, you have the secret of the kingdom. It is not a principle or an idea. It is a person. Okay? Now, in this passage, Jesus quotes a verse from Isaiah chapter 6 to explain why he's using parables. And Isaiah 6 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. It's one of the most important passages in the whole Old Testament, the whole ancient history of God's people. And in it, the prophet Isaiah gets a vision of the throne room of God. And so Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. 
Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings, and with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And the foundation shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. So Isaiah sees this great king seated on the throne, high and lifted up. And the majestic train of his robe fills the whole room. It it overflows into the whole space. And there are these angelic beings called seraphim. Seraphim just means flaming ones fiery ones. They're beings, these six-winged creatures of fire and light, and they're flying around the throne. They're orbiting the king on the throne. If one of these seraphim were to drop down into the sanctuary this morning, right, we would all faint. Right? Some of us would pee our pants, right? They're so bright and powerful Right, that we would be knocked to the floor. We would be tempted to worship them. If one of them spoke, it would shake the foundations of the building. It would crack the foundations, right? But Isaiah says that the king is so bright and beautiful, so glorious, that these seraphim are using one set of wings to cover their face because they can't look at how bright and beautiful he is. And Isaiah says that he is so, the gravitas of his purity is so clean and bright and holy, 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 that they're using another set of wings to cover their feet, symbolizing their uncleanness, their impurity by comparison to him. And as loud as they can, they're worshiping. Holy is the Lord of angel armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, what happens to Isaiah in that moment, right? He gets a sense of the full force of the glory and the holiness of the king, and what does he say? Does he try to destroy him because he's upending his previous understandings of how religion works? Absolutely not. He, He would never even entertain the idea it would be impossible to destroy such a king. Does he try to employ him? Right? Does he say, okay, let's go, let's fix this thing, let's get rid of the bad guys and put the good guys back in power? Again, no, never. What he says is, woe is me, I am ruined, I am utterly undone, because my eyes have seen the king, the lord of angel armies. Right? When, Isaiah, when Isaiah really sees the king, he can't maintain any illusion of right or of authority, or control, and he says, if this is what he's liked, then I am a ruined sinner. And then something absolutely miraculous happens. Something wonderful happens. And by, by the way, okay, in the culture that we grew up in, this might not be surprising to us, but to Isaiah's original audience, they would have said, yeah, you, you came into the throne root of the king, you're lucky that you even survived Of course you were undone by his glory and his holiness, right? And here's the plot twist. Here's the miraculous thing that happens. It says, one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hands was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar, that is, from the place where sacrifices were made. 
And he touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. So in response to Isaiah's confession of his sin, he receives a touch, a kiss from the fiery throne of the king, and that makes him forgiven and atoned for. And then, only then, is Isaiah commissioned to go and tell other people what has happened to him. And that's where the quote from Mark chapter 4 comes in. Right? The king says to Isaiah, go tell other people, but they're, they're going to hear you, but they're not going to understand. And they're going to see things that they can't explain, but they're not really going to perceive what's going on. Right? And then a little further down in the passage, Isaiah says, when will they understand? How long do I have to do this? And there's this little verse in Isaiah 6, 13, where, where the king says, when the holy offspring comes, when the holy offspring shows up in the world, then they will begin to understand. And now in Mark chapter 4, he's here. What is the secret of the kingdom? It's not a principle, it's a person. Here's the secret, okay? It's the key to understanding the parable of the sower And it's the key to understanding all of the other parables that Jesus tells. The king in Isaiah chapter 6 is the sower in Mark chapter 4. The holy, holy, holy Lord of angel armies is Jesus, gentle and lowly. It's amazing. I mean, the, the call to worship that we use, Isaiah 57, 15, right? We saw this. It says that the God, the king, he's high and lofty. He's lifted up and he loves to dwell with the contrite and the lowly and the broken and the needy. Have you ever seen that show? You you guys remember that show, Undercover Bosses? I don't know if it's still on TV even. Okay, I don't know if anyone watches cable TV anymore, all right? But there used to be this show called Undercover Bosses and one of the kind of a CEO of a big company, he would come down and he would disguise himself as a lowly employee in that company and, and he would kind of work among the, the, the common people. And there were two things that were always supposed to happen in every episode, okay? One of them was that he was supposed to get to know the people who were working for him, to really know them and understand them. And the second was that he or she was supposed to confront an unruly manager, right? A kind of a, a, a rebellious, a rambunctious, a sinful kind of middle management employee. He was supposed to smack them down, right, for their sins, so to speak. You understand that when Jesus came into the world, he was doing the inverse of that. He came undercover so that we could know what God is like. He wanted to show you what God is like. You thought he was wonderful. He's better than you imagined. And instead of smacking down unruly employees, he came to give forgiveness and mercy and restoration and reconciliation and new life. Think about that. Think about what this means. If the all-glorious king is a farmer with a sack of seed slung over his shoulder. If the Lord of angel armies is a carpenter with calloused but careful hands, building something more beautiful than we can imagine. If the holy, holy, holy God is a humble shepherd intimately leading and loving his sheep. 
The secret of the kingdom is that the eternal king became an unassuming, unexpected human so that he could be the atoning sacrifice on the altar that makes us forgiven, that makes us righteous. Because the king became the sacrifice, a touch, a kiss from him can make your iniquities clean, your sins totally forgiven, make you atone for forever. That is the secret of the kingdom Jesus is referring to in this passage. It is the stunning truth that the Pharisees couldn't wrap their minds around because of their relentless commitment to their own self-righteousness, but needy sinners began to see him for who he really was, and that changed how they saw everything else. They began to depend on him, and he gave them wisdom. Jesus says, you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. It's me. Here I am. Right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, his infinite majesty, and his intimate friendship. Now, with that in mind, we can come to this parable, okay? The second reason that Jesus likes to teach in parables is because it makes us come back to him and come back to him again and come back to him again and again and again for transformation and for understanding. You see, what you and I love to do, and I, I think that I am probably the, the person most guilty of this in the whole room, is we love to reduce life and maybe especially religious life to a principle or a set of rules or sort of a self-help concept, right? And we can do that with the parables, right? We can say, Jesus, give me the little truth that I need to unlock the more productive and more powerful version of myself. And Jesus says, as long as you try to do that, you will be frustrated by the Christian life. You'll be frustrated by my parables, right? Because you can't, Jesus is irreducible, right? He cannot be reduced to a principle or a single concept. He is a living, dynamic person, and you have a dynamic relationship with him. And he says, keep coming back to me over and over and over and over again for understanding and for transformation. That's why he teaches in parables, right? He says, come back and see my glory and my grace anew, right? And so, with the sower king squarely in view, we can begin to understand what's going on in this passage, all right? Each type, you know, if you're familiar with this passage, maybe if you grew up hearing it in like a church context or a Sunday school context, the two things that we were often told about this passage were that each of these soil types is sort of a psychological, spiritual state, and you need to kind of figure out which one you are and make sure you fix yourself if you're one of the first three, right? Or you're supposed to be the sower and get out there and evangelize as many people as you can. And you got to realize that some people are going to be hard path people, you know, and some people are going to be thorn people, but you got to keep just getting out there and proclaiming the gospel and throwing seed. And both of those things are sort of secondarily true, but they are not the primary truth of this parable. The truth is that Jesus is the sower, right? And that it is only through relationship with the sower that you can become that fourth type of receptive soil, okay? And so you can see how each of these types was, was a part of Jesus' own ministry. There are people that were totally hardened, to him. And it says that Satan would come along and every time that he threw out a seed of, of his word, a seed of truth, a seed of gospel, that Satan would come along and snatch that truth away from them because it, was, it had landed on top of hardened, compact soil. Right? The Bible calls Satan the father of lies. Right? 
And so Jesus would come and tell the truth, and then Satan would come along and he would tell a lie. Right? And say, you're, not, you're, not, you're not quite as bad as that. Right? God's not quite as good as that, and the seed wouldn't take root, most notably with the Pharisees. Right? There are these people with shallow soil. Jesus, many, many followers got excited about him and followed him for a little while, but when it got hard, when it got dangerous, when there was a risk of persecution, they turned away and they said, this isn't what we sign up for. Right? And there are a few people who are wealthy right? and who have desire for kind of many worldly things, many worldly material things, things of affluence, and they come to Jesus, and Jesus says things like, give away most of what you have and come follow me, and those thorns of wealth, they choke out the desire to follow Jesus, right? And there is this small, motley crew of people who seem like losers, right, who seem like total lost causes, who at the end of the story bear much fruit in proclaiming the gospel, to the world, right? And each type of these applies to us today, okay? Think about what each of these soil types needs, right? If you, if someone is, they've hardened their heart toward Jesus, right? They say, he's not as good as, as he claims to be, and I'm not as bad as I'm being told that I am, right? Then what do they need to do? They need to have an Isaiah experience, right? They need to see the glory of Jesus, that says he's infinitely better and more, more pure than I thought, and I, woe is me, I'm ruined, right? And that begins to break up hardened soil, right? When you are hard-hearted towards Jesus and then you see in the light of his purity, in the light of his holiness, that you're doomed and ruined, that begins to break hardened hearts, right? If you're a, sa- a shallow soil person, someone who has come to Jesus and said, I'm really excited about you, Jesus, and I've got good plans for us, I wanna employ you, to bring about these good results in my life, right? And then persecution and hardship comes along, right? The thing that you need is for the gospel, the grace of Jesus to go deeper, right? To soften that soil, to give you some depth. And that depth actually comes through hardship and persecution. If in the midst of hardship and persecution, you say to Jesus, this isn't what I signed up for, the gospel won't take root. The word of God, the truth and the love of Jesus won't take root in your life. But if in the midst of hardship and persecution, you go to Jesus and say, what's going on here? Right? Why, why is this happening? Help me. I need more of your grace than I previously realized. He'll start to deepen you. Right? And the roots of faith will grow deeper into your life. And I think the third one, the, the, the seed that is choked out by thorns, is maybe especially pertinent to our community. Right? Because what does it say? It says, the worries or the anxieties of this world... Right? and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for many other things chokes out the gospel. Right? What you have to realize, m- most of the people in this room, what we have to realize is that the affluence that we enjoy, right, the riches that we enjoy are tricky. Right? Because what they tell you is, yeah, Jesus is fine and good, but there are so many other things that are better that you can enjoy in this life. Right? And when you're worried and you're anxious about the troubles and the pains of this world, they say, you can take care of yourself. If you have enough money, if you have enough control, if you have enough power, you can work out your own well-being. And Jesus says in this parable, things like that will choke out your dependence on him. They'll choke out the power of the gospel in your life. Right? There's this great little passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that where, where Paul is writing to wealthy people, 
right? And he says, the desire for riches is the root of evil, and it leads, leads to many pangs of desire, many unfulfilled desires in this life. And then he says, but if you give away your riches, and if you give away money and affluence until it feels risky such that you have to depend on Jesus, the words that he uses are, then you will take hold of that which is truly life. Instead of those riches and those anxieties and those thorns taking hold of you and squeezing the life out of you, you will take hold of the infinite life that is found in Jesus. You need more of his glory and his grace. Now, a lot of people have have, have commented on this parable that the sower in this parable seems to be kind of wasteful, right? Because he's basically just going out and he's just tossing seed everywhere, Right? And the way that people have tried to explain this is they said, okay, back in the day, before sort of modern agricultural practices, they would just go and just kind of throw seed everywhere and just kind of see, you know, I'll, I'll chuck some over here on the path, I'll throw some into this thorn bush, I'll throw some over here onto this terrible soil, and we'll just see what happens. Right? And that's just not true. Right? They, they, they weren't dumb back then. Right? They knew how to farm. They tilled the soil before. They put the seed down in a systematic way. And so what Jesus seems to be saying in this passage is, the kind of sower that I am is going to look wasteful and extravagant and sort of wild and unexpected. I'm going to throw the seed of God's word in places that you would never have expected in your life and in the community around you. And you're going to say, Jesus, what are you doing? But if you come to me again and again and hear me tell you these parables again and again, if you look full in my wonderful face and see my grace and my glory, then what will begin to happen is you'll start to bear fruit in a way that you never expected, in a way that the world cannot explain. It's not going to match up with modern self-help practices. It's going to look messy and it's going to be painful and you will bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold what you would have expected. And the amazing thing that will happen is, as you start to bear that fruit in your own life, you will naturally begin to sow the seed of the gospel into the lives of the people around you. The evangelism, the whole evangelism thing will take care of itself. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. Uh, God, it's, a, it's a story that is um, familiar to many of us, and yet it has riches and depth uh, and complexity that we only, uh, we, we've, we've only seen the tip of the iceberg. And so Jesus, I pray that today and this week that we would come back to you again and again, that you would lead us quickly to repentance and that you would lead us deeper into dependence such that we can live in relationship with you with a deeper understanding of both your glory and your grace, of both your great, great majesty and holiness and your wonderful forgiveness your mercy, your grace, your kindness toward us. We need both of those things to transform our hearts such that we bear fruit in the way that you've called us to bear fruit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.